This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition in the Compliance Podcast Network, my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus. As the voice of compliance, I wanted to start a podcast which will help bring both clarity and sanity to the field of compliance, the compliance practitioner, and indeed the compliance profession during this worldwide health and healthcare crisis. Taking up a variety of topics as diverse as working from home to sporting events, to the role of the board of directors, to crisis management, to the role of supply chains. We will look at all of these in this podcast. If you have a topic you'd like covered on compliance and coronavirus, please let me know. I'd be happy to do a podcast on it. This week on Innovation and Compliance, I'm running a five-part sponsored podcast series in conversation with K2 Fin Intelligence, navigating an increasingly complex sanctions landscape sponsored by K2 Intelligence Fin. Check out this five-part series with Adam Frey and Eric Lorber. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have with me Bill Sanders. Uh, Bill does work, professional consulting work, and we're going to visit today about some of his thoughts on uh, high performance and the M&A explosion that I see coming in the future. Um, Bill, so first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Bill, I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about your professional background. Oh, certainly. Um, I've kind of had a pretty varied background. So I started out my undergrads in computer information systems. I spent seven years in civil engineering, three years in uh, curriculum development in terms of business school. Then I uh, joined the gold rush here in the late 90s out in California to help launch uh, Mattel's first e-commerce website and then stayed on to run it uh, after it was launched. Eventually, in the early aughts, I uh, helped start the ROCG uh, consulting group. So it was about 43 firms worldwide working with mostly small businesses around family-owned, closely held um, companies. And then I got recruited out into the advertising space, and I spent about uh, almost five years in the B2B um, advertising and then B2C and digital marketing. And then in 2009, when I left the last agency, I was going to take a break, try to decide, you know, am I going to go back to uh, brand? Do I want to go back to consulting? Do I want to go back to the agency world? And, uh, you know, about four days after I left, I got a call. They had a project. That was M&A. The company bought two competing companies. They'd been owned for about a year. They'd done no integration at all other than email. And these two companies used to compete head to head. So it's very little trust. And now they're having to work together. And so that was my first consulting assignment, and I never got my three months off. So here we are 10 years later. So, Bill, on the on your website, it advertises the business as a business transition and process innovation consultancy. Uh, what does that mean? Oh, the business transition parts uh, kind of includes the organizational development work that we do. Uh, helping companies change their structures to match new realities to their business model. It also includes a fair amount of our PMI work. So our, uh, we call it post-merger innovation. But uh, it, how, how do we bring those companies in? And then the um, it's kind of the realignment of people, processes, and platforms, whether that's combining two companies, whether that's developing a new team. Um, and then on the process innovation side, it can, it's more project related on that side. So it could be taking a marketing campaign process and breaking it down and, you know, 
taking 40% of the time and effort out that's not really creating any value. Uh, it could be setting up a project management office. Uh, it could be launching new products, new services, uh, leading teams that are doing big prototyping projects. And then occasionally we do one-off high-risk projects like uh, rebranding a small multinational or overseeing a data center build in another country or something like that. Bill, you're a contributor to a book entitled From Hierarchy to High, How to Realize Performance and Extraordinary Results. How did you come to be a contributor to this book? Mm. So, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do is stay involved in some nonprofit somewhere. Uh, so I was uh, when I left as the president of the American Marketing Association here in San Francisco, I took a little one year break and then I started looking around to see who was doing something I thought was interesting and was worth, you know, contributing some time to. And I ran across a group that was started by Joan Blades called Great Work Cultures and became a member of that board. And as we morphed and built a set of relationships on that board, we realized that we, we kind of had a lot of varied voices that were saying similar things around culture and processes and platforms. And so we decided to uh, co-author a book and we published that, I guess, about a year and a half ago. So one of the things that struck me about your article, Bill, was the, uh, this, the speed of change in technological innovation one of my observations through the first phase of the coronavirus health crisis has been the acceleration of changes that were already in place. So in my world of corporate compliance, we had technological solutions and data analytics coming down the pike, and now they've accelerated greatly as people have moved to work from home and can't perhaps do as many on-site things as they could before. Do you see COVID-19 uh, accelerating this, or do you see perhaps something different? Definitely see it accelerating it. Uh, one of my clients has uh, a private call uh, with a lot of folks in the digital marketing industry. And in that, when uh, the team, about 50 people on the call, and the survey came back that it had more than two and a half times doubled their pace of digital transformation in their organizations. And of everyone on the call, only three companies said that it had not increased their pace of digital transformation. And when I looked into them, all three of those companies were online already exclusively. So um, I think I think the uh, the pressure of COVID is a really, really good example of how this there's this constant rate of change right now and it seems to even be speeding up so a lot of the things that were already underway uh, needed to be accelerated or dropped so one of the things that's always fascinated me has been uh when you have an economic downturn when you have an economic spike or anything in between there's always opportunity and uh you have to look for that opportunity, but this speed of change has accelerated even the opportunities that I see, uh, and that leads to really uh, a question I wanted to pose to you around uh, the future of work, the future of business, and how companies can prepare for that. You've, you've listed three things that I really wanted to explore with you because I think they have an application in a variety of topics or, or rather disciplines and corporate functions. So uh, could you address uh, those three that you see? Yeah. Um, I mean, I get the words exactly right from the book, but the first one is how we look at change and how we look at adversity. I mean, a, a lot of our mental models for business are built around structures that are there 
to deal with complicated situations. We're trying to build moats. We're trying to build markets. We're trying to reproduce reliably uh, a systematic way of doing something. So I think of that different, the difference between complicated, like a watch, right? Whereas every, if every part's correct and every part works together, it works great. As soon as you take one part out of it, um, that, that watch, part of it's going to be broken. If you take the wrong part out, the whole thing's going to be broken. Whereas complexity, which is what we're living in with this rapid change, is much more like a basketball game. Right. There's everything is constantly changing and moving around you. Your competitors are doing different things. There's different compliance laws coming out all the time. So we no longer have the luxury of going off in a corner in the C-suite, developing a strategy, trying to communicate it to the troops. Right. And then, you know, putting out three year plans, five year plans, because the, the assumptions underneath that. Even if your assumption's correct right now, the assumption is probably not going to be correct tomorrow. And so the ability to change in the moment and have a team that's communicating cross-functional is just an absolute requirement. So a lot of those old mindsets come along with that old model. And so changing the way we look at adversity, changing the way we look at change itself and really adapting it, looking for it. I mean, again, when I think about Adversity, I used to have a mentor that used to say power is guarded by problems, right? We gain skills by solving problems. So you're not going to get to be very much of a bodybuilder if you hate the gym. If you hate going in and lifting weights, you're not ever going to be top of your class. And so looking at problems that come into the organization, be they people or process or platforms or technology or external competition, as a way to do the workout of becoming you know, better human beings, right? Better managers, better leaders. When you change those mindsets, you change your response to the situations that come in. It gives you a lot better um, handle and attitude toward uh, dealing with them successfully. So how about the, uh, the prong that says experiment and take risks? How can you try that, do that, use that in the corporate setting? Well, um, I think about let's, let's go back for a second because the other thing is kind of a situational awareness, uh, I think was one of my other points in there, and that is awareness of what else is going on around, right? So what do you know about geopolitics? What do you know about uh, what's going on in the culture? What do you know about what's going on in business, finance, all those things? I read a ton across a lot of different areas. So, and I'm in a lot of different companies. So one of the advantages of being a consultant is I, you may never have seen that problem before. I've probably seen it in a different environment half a dozen times. So I've got more perspective to bring to the, to the table on it. So expanding that reading up front and being aware of what things are going on. Books like Brave New Work or uh, Agile M&A. Um, this United Nations, things that have just been published in the last year or two that are age of agile books that kind of consolidate what is going on in a big picture uh, methodology. So you can kind of start saying, hey, where could we experiment? What could we do differently? If we take this process right here, 
um, how can I get the team on board? And we go through and we do uh, a value mapping exercise, which anybody can do, and you know, figure out what needs to be eliminated because it's not adding value. Figure out how to automate it or systematize it, and then how to delegate it, how to train somebody else to take that. I mean, one of my, I think one of the reasons that um, I've done so many different things is I'm a, interested in a lot of different things, but also it's I've always had the attitude of I'm trying to work myself out of a job, but whatever that position is, if I can almost eliminate the need for me there, then I can go do something else. And so that eliminate, automate, delegate, let's figure out where we can start that experimentation. What are the risks that you that you can take in a uh, situation of letting someone else have some more decision-making authority, let someone else have some more budgetary authority? How do we uh, pull together some cross-functional teams regardless of what the organizational structure actually looks like on paper and start taking those risks. Uh, I believe it was Jeff Bezos that talked about in one of his uh, annual letters um, that, you know, here's how we do decision-making, right? We, the first question is, is it a door we can come back through? If we take a risk and it doesn't work, if we, if we, if we try an experiment and we don't get the result we wanted, can we back out inexpensively? Or if we go through that door, are we committed to it? And so if we if we're committed to it after going through the door, then we have to have more uh, more people involved in the decision making. Compliance needs to be involved. But if it's something that any team can go off and experiment on, let them go. Right. Let them have the room to experiment and quit thinking about it as, OK, that didn't work. It was a failure. It's experiment and say uh, that we didn't get the result we wanted. What do we have to change? So do you believe that these three general principles still hold true in the accelerated age of coronavirus uh, that we're currently in? Oh, or, yeah, more so even, right? More so. Now, maybe in the age of coronavirus right now where everybody's retrenched a little bit, it means that you don't do as many experiments, right? But doing more experiments. I mean, one of the, I'm forgetting the name right now, but uh, one of the big insurance companies started uh, work from home Friday, two years ago. All right. So they were already set up their entire infrastructure, their culture had already adapted to remote work. So flip the switch on a Monday when we get locked down, they had no problem at all. Everybody had already worked out all the kinks because somebody was forward and forward thinking enough to say, Hey, let's experiment with this. I had a client that was just their mindset was everyone has to be on site. So right. they literally would not hire an individual that lived more than 30 minutes away in traffic, which means they had a very small talent footprint in their organization. You know, if you didn't live within that area, they weren't hiring you because they knew that it was traffic. People wouldn't stay very long. All that kind of great stuff. So, it's hard to hire the right people. One of their star players got married, got pregnant, wanted to buy a house, couldn't buy a house in the Bay Area. Husband made good money. She gave her two-week notice, and they moved to Portland. He freaked out. He called me. What am I going to do? We can't replace her. Why do you need to replace her? Do you trust her? Why not let her work remote? There's nothing she does with that team that requires her to be present. And because she was such a good employee, he allowed her to do that. Within 18 months, 40% of that company worked remote. 
they didn't have any trouble hiring good people anymore. But, you know, until they experimented with it and found, you know, new ways of working. Look, if you're still managing people about what time they show up and whether they took an hour long lunch or an hour and a half long lunch and what time they left at the end of the day, you're missing the the whole point. I think one of the greatest uh, gifts for me personally was the very first team I managed was in another state halfway around the state. So I had to manage them on objectives and deliverables, not what time they got there. <laughs> I had um, my boss at the time was actually at that location. And when one of our weekly calls, very irate with me, she's like, you've got to get control of your people. Like they'll, they're, they're running nuts. I don't know when they're coming in. I don't know when they're leaving. And I'm like, um, we're up 17%. What are you complaining about? And she's like, when I dug into it and asked the question, the reality was that she was still managing her people the old way and they were complaining about it. And so, okay, we'll, we'll compromise. Everybody's got flex time. Just be consistent with the flex time. Like if you really need to drop your kids off at school and not come in till nine o'clock because of that, no problem. Just be in at nine o'clock. Just so everybody is a little more comfortable with it. So there's always hybrids of what you can do, but, um, you know, after we had some conversations, uh, she ended up managing her team the same way, and she's still on my advisory board. <laughs> so one of the things I really wanted to visit with you about, Bill, is I see a huge upswing in mergers and, and uh, acquisitions in Q3 and Q4, largely mm-hmm. because of the current economic dislocation. They're going to be, I think, a lot of distressed assets for sale. There are going to be mm-hmm. multiple companies in bankruptcy that could be bought out of bankruptcy. Uh, companies are are not engaging in a lot of that activity now for either economic uncertainty or they're sitting on a pile of cash. Uh, they may have pulled out of, of deals that have uh, given them the cash to do something. What sort of advice are you giving to companies now to prepare for this explosion, whether it's sort of the last half of this year or, or into 2021? Yeah. Yeah. Question back to you around that. How much how much of that M and A activity do you see that's actually going to be like the fire sale side of it versus strategic acquisitions? Well, I'm in Houston, so my focus is on, on energy, and I see a lot of fire sales in energy. So that's really what I thought about the most. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I haven't really uh, put a lot of thought in the energy side of it. I've been working more in service agency and some of the other um, side of the world on that thing. The I think there's going to be a a temptation because it is so cheap to buy without really doing the due diligence, right? Without really thinking through how that fits to a strategic vision. I think that um, uh, what I do find in these situations where there's a fire sale, so to speak, is that a lot of folks tend to think about it as, man, that's just too good a deal to pass up. And, yeah, if it does, and they get the the deal thesis becomes the gain instead of the overall strategy of the organization and what it needs to do to grow. That's one thing. So I think the first piece of advice I'd say is be very very careful that you know the the sale part of it doesn't drive decision making. Uh, instead, make sure it's very strategic on that. I think the other thing around that is. Um, even with fire sale, you can make that a strategic acquisition, right? If there's real, uh, maybe it's market, maybe it's cost structure in some cases, especially around energy. But 
we really need to be thinking about innovating. We need to be thinking about creating value. And if, uh, if, if you can't, you can't tell me how you're going to create value by that purchase and what it means to your end customer instead of just what it means to your balance sheet, I, I, I suspect you're not looking strategically enough at it. I would certainly agree that is the problem or one of the problems with the energy industry. All they focus on really is reserves and yeah. asset acquisition, whether those mm-hmm. assets are going to be used to create new value, greater value, or value down the road. So uh, I find that very interesting. Bill, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if uh, any of our listeners wanted more information uh, about yourself, get in contact with you, or uh, find out more about the, your consulting practice, where could they go? Uh, they can go to roblingstrauss.com, R-O-E-B-L-I-N-G-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And um, one of the things I would be willing to do if anybody wants the, the chapter of my book, I'll be happy to send it to you. Uh, just drop me a line at book at roblingstrauss.com, and uh, I'll email you a copy of it and uh, kind of a recommended reading list if they're interested. Well, Bill, this has been a fascinating uh, uh, visit, and I hope that as we move into Q3 and Q4, I might be able to call upon you again to uh, garner your thoughts and get some insight as to where we may be at that point in time. Thanks, Tom. I'd be happy to do that. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance and Coronavirus. This is the only B2B podcast which brings clear and sane information for both the compliance professional and the business executive. If I could ask you uh, to do one thing, if you could tell one person about this podcast, I'm trying to get the word out uh, about this motion podcast in the compliance podcast network. So if you could tell one person about it, send them a copy, send them a link, do something uh, to help me publicize this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Compliance and Coronavirus is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, and it appears Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of each week. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.